0: Here's your host, Josh Friedman. Hey, everyone! Today we have a really interesting guest for you. His name is Eric Maddox, and he is an interrogator who got the intel that led to the capture of Saddam Hussein. Obviously, he's going to have a lot of interesting things to share with us today. And joining me in the studio this week to listen to and discuss the episode are my friends and fellow leaders, Hannah Friedman and Parker Batista. So. Eric was working with the military. This is kind of a a loose connection here, but we just celebrated July 4th. So as a semi-patriotic question to start off the show, what did y'all do for July 4th?
1: I feel like the three key elements that you need in a July 4th celebration are something near the water and a cookout and fireworks. And I hit two of the three. So my parents had a cookout and I went and watched fireworks, but I missed the water aspect.
0: How about you, Parker? That's awesome. I got two out of three. Um, we did the cookout and the swimming part, but not the fireworks. So I live with a family that have a one-year-old and a four-year-old and just got to hang out with them for the day, and it was awesome. Did you all see any fireworks in the area? Uh, the neighbors had some. That was about it. Well, Hannah being my sister, we did a very similar things on July 4th, but it was good to hang out with family and friends and remember the the early days of our nation. So... Eric Maddox is the Army interrogator who, while attached to a Delta Force team in Iraq, collected the intelligence which led to the capture of Saddam Hussein. After this, he became the first civilian interrogator for the Defense Intelligence Agency and went on to conduct over 2,700 interrogations. Eric has repeatedly been able to influence those who have zero trust in him to make the decision to give him information without using torture. Eric honed his systematic methods of creating influence in hostile environments, but has found they're equally as useful in building or retaining relationships of all sorts. If you'd like to hear more from Eric, you can check out his own podcast called Creating Influence. Here is Eric. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Josh. If you would, go ahead and start off by telling us a little bit about your story and how you came to be such an advocate for empathy-based listening.
1: Sure. In 2003, when the United States went to war in Iraq, um, the main goal was to track down Saddam Hussein. And I was a soldier in the military. I was a trained interrogator, but I'd never done interrogations. The military had me focused on my specialty, which was Chinese Mandarin intelligence collection. So I didn't think I was going to be involved in the war in Iraq. But because of my infantry background, I was picked to kind of join this Delta Force team in tocree Iraq, Saddam's hometown. Um, three months into the war, I was asked to do interrogations to gather information. And I quickly realized the interrogation techniques that the military taught don't work. Um, maybe they worked in the past, but they don't work for prisoners in a insurgency battlefield where there's no uniform, there's no smoking guns. And I needed to figure out how to communicate with these prisoners. And for me, the way to do that was to try to gain their trust by actually listening to them to understand their stories. And the more that I started doing this with the prisoners, the more I realized not only can you gain their trust, it it's the way to do it. And so I did 300 interrogations over a, a five-month period. And as I'm doing these interrogations, getting cooperation from prisoners, they started to lay out the sort of the, the blueprint, the link diagram, social network of the insurgency, And I started to believe that at the top would be Saddam. And so as we did this, we realized that Saddam had possibly just picked one individual to know his location. That way he stayed protected as long as that person didn't give him up. And that individual, who was a former bodyguard of Saddam, became the primary focus. And on the last day of my tour in country, we captured that bodyguard. And I interrogated him, and it took about 90 minutes, but he broke. And after 90 minutes, he said, yep, I know where he is. I'll take you. And that evening, December thirteenth, two 2003, he took the Delta Force team that I had been supporting to the infamous spider home. And that's where they found Saddam. So because of that success, I was asked to kind of explain and develop this interrogation tactic that I created and I was hired as the first ever civilian interrogator for the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2004 after the capture of Saddam. And for the next 10 years, I would end up doing a total of 2,700 interrogations and really dialed in and honed on this interrogation technique. And from that, I started to realize that companies and corporations and leaders liked this form of communication as it can build trust and really break through some barriers and give separation to certain leaders. And I've spent the next several years, I retired in 2014, teaching, giving keynotes on this technique, this psychological communication technique.
0: So I want to move to that technique in just a second. But first of all, whenever you found out that Saddam Hussein had been captured, was the response like relief, success? What what, what did it feel like when the goal that you had been trying to attain was finally accomplished?
1: That's a great question, Josh. It was a relief because I believed he was in Tikrit, Iraq and no one else did. The government didn't, the CIA didn't, the other intelligence elements really said, Eric, he's not in that town of Tikrit. Just because you've been there, you're kind of creating this idea that he is there. And I, I appreciated that, but I also felt like I wasn't being biased. I was listening to information that I I thought was more accurate than their sources of information. So there was a sense of, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not going insane. The guy was here. So the relief was more just you're, when you're, when you're going after someone at that high of a level, it becomes consuming. Mm. And when you're right, you don't want to say, Oh, I told you so. You just want to tell yourself like, you weren't
0: crazy so so, what is the secret to this technique that has proven so effective and that the military wanted you to teach to others because of its effectiveness
1: so the the, the technique and I call it empathy based listening right, and so if you think of the word empathy, you think of being in someone else's shoes to have an understanding of that person. well, the technique of empathy based listening. It is having a conversation, verbal communication, with the goal to seek understanding of another person, their perspective, with regards to the topic of discussion. Now, to do that, you've got to take away a lot of characteristics that people have, which tend to be selfish. People want to think about their own agenda, their own biases, their own entertainment in the conversation, their own stories. So the real key is you have to um, put all your distractions behind you. And then when you're talking to people, if you do this and you seek to understand them, during conversations, people will leave clues, right? They will say things. They will, they will make comments that will leave you clues as to what to follow up on. And I've come to the theory that when people are having a conversation with somebody they know or just met, doesn't matter how deep the relationship, every conversation is a test and you're testing whether or not the person that you're talking to at that moment cares more about what's going on in your world or they care more about what's going on in their own world. And if you can demonstrate that you care more what's going on in someone else's world, you can instantaneously gain a level of trust. that's almost impossible to gain any other way. Hmm. And if you can continually after each question and each response, reinforce that you are focused on them and not yourself. You actually reinforce that trust quickly and very powerfully.
0: So how do you ask questions in such a way that you can build that trust as you're intentionally listening to whoever it is that you're communicating with?
1: So the main thing is that you don't have any preconceived notions or plan about asking the questions. It's simply what they gave you in the previous comment will typically tell you what they are interested in, right? Like what they want to discuss. So if you can listen just to what they say, the most the most recent comment they make, if you can quickly analyze it for what is most important to them, you you can always know what to respond with. So it's not as complicated as people think. You just have to get out of your own way.
0: Do you have any examples of how you were able to apply this technique when you were working as an interrogator in Iraq or maybe some other situations as an interrogator?
1: Sure. So for instance, if I'm talking to a prisoner and I believe they can take me to other insurgent members. So yeah. if I believe they can take me to targets, right? And that's that's kind of the ultimate goal, have a bad guy, interrogate him, have him take you to more bad guys. That's that seems pretty straightforward. if I'm talking to a prisoner and they say, well, I don't know where anybody lives. Well, that's what they want to say, right? Because they don't want to take you somewhere. And I say, you know, I find it hard to believe that you don't really know where any single person lives. And if they go, it's complicated. What a lot of people are going to do is they're going to go, Oh, I know you think it's complicated, but it's really not. Blah, 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 blah. Hmm. Well, what you need to do is they're testing you. They, they just want to know are you going to ask them, how is it complicated? You would think that would be the most simple response you could possibly get is simply go, how's it complicated? People don't ask that question. They don't. 90% of people in that conversation right there will not ask the question, how's it complicated? Oh, uh, well, the way things work with Iraqis since this war began they don't make sense to you americans right hmm. that 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 would seem to be a that would that would make sense right if you're talking to a prisoner well, all you need to do on that response is ask them we americans what what does that mean right like they They intentionally are going to be vague about very deliberate, provocative statements. You just have to listen to them. And you have to follow up. So when I say, we Americans, like, why would we not understand? Then he'll tell you, right? They will respond. But what people typically do is they go, you know, we Americans are just like you Iraqis. We have family members, too. And we and we blah, 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 blah. And all this stuff, right, because they make these assumptions and they're not really they're not they're not following up on any clues. And those are really, really blatant clues. Well, in every conversation, someone's going to give you clues if you listen to them and respond, like if I respond to that prisoner and say, we Americans, like what do we not understand that puts that person at ease. Hmm. They go, "Wow, he really cares let me let me try that again, so they'll say something to the effect of "You think you know Saddam, but you really don't right Made that would sound like a sit and go what 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 do we not understand about him right? What do we think we know that's not right? All I'm doing is repeating, but with a proper interrogative that is most interested in what they just say, minus any of my thoughts or notions. Well, if you do this about 12 straight times, you're instantaneously, you're immediately going to gain the trust of anybody you're talking to. It's that quick. It's that simple. And, you know, on average of the thousands of prisoners that have been interrogated since 9-11 by U.S. military interrogators, only 4% of prisoners break. Using my technique, prisoners break at 65% using this simple, basic idea. Now, you have to go much deeper. You have to have a strategy, all that stuff. But the premise is listen to them and get out of your own way.
0: And that's one of those things that it it sounds – it sounds good, and I think people understand that. One of the questions I have is how, how do leaders do that, especially when they have an agenda? Because as an interrogator, like you said, you have an agenda, but how can you get out of your own way when you're communicating with someone so that your agenda doesn't inhibit your conversation with this individual?
1: All right, Josh, give me an example. Let's let's jump into one. Give me a leader. Give me an example where they have an agenda, and let's quickly do a role play real fast. It'll take just one minute. Uh,
0: just something, something broad. Uh, a, a leader wants to implement a new policy at work that may not be really popular. Let's say reducing lunch break from one hour to half an hour. Okay.
1: So the leader wants to reduce lunch break from one hour to half an hour, right? Yeah. And he has the big Monday morning meetings and he says, give me it, give it, give the announcement.
0: All right, everyone. We want to uh, use our company's resources better. We would like to make sure that we are as effective of an organization as possible so that we can reach out to our customers. And so because of that, we are going to be reducing your lunch break from an hour every day to a half hour.
1: And give me some responses that you think you might hear from a disgruntled uh, workforce just individually. What would be some of those responses?
0: Yeah, people are doing other things over their lunch break. Someone might say, hey, this is this is the one time I have during the day to take care of a couple personal items and respond to personal emails. Someone else might say, this is my time. How can you take away my personal time and not pay me anymore. But I feel like mainly people would just dislike the fact that their time off is being reduced by half.
1: Right. So on the first one is you're you're taking this is the one time of the day that I have the chance to do things that I can't otherwise do throughout the day. Right. Yeah. What would be the response of the leader? Give me the leader's response.
0: I feel like the, the leader would say, hey, this is just something that will help our company operate more effectively. This is a decision that we've made so that we can serve our customers better.
1: So bottom line is the leader made an announcement, the worker made a response, and the leader followed up with a response that had nothing to do with what the subordinate, the worker, said mm-hmm. at all, whatsoever, mm-hmm. zero. They weren't listening to them they basically went in there and said i have an i have a reason that i'm doing this and this person gave what i believe to be a pretty seem like a legitimate argument yeah i have things i need to do and i'm not able to do them i think possibly a response would have been if, if it's bob or barbara who made the argument to just say what are the things that that are kind of critical for you to be doing during that hour? I, I I don't even know what those are. What what are the sort of things you get knocked out during your lunch hour? Right. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you just ask that question? Because he didn't address it like just to ask. But as you properly stated, Josh, they're not going to ask because they don't care because it's just the policy. But what we don't understand is that this policy was set up for a different reason. Now, the reason is not whatever was stated. And if it is what it's stated, what it's really doing is I'm not saying it's a bad policy, but typically lunch break shave down policies are are created because people are wasting time at break Hmm. at their lunch. There's another reason. And it's probably like a 20 percent of the people are taking advantage of it. So we're going to force it on everyone. And that doesn't make it right or wrong, right? The bottom line is we're not communicating. The the leader did not communicate the true reason for the lunch break. Because if he did communicate the true reason for the lunch break, he could probably go, "You know what Barbara? You're not really the problem here." Because you're a go-getter and not only do um, you know, you've got a lot of things on your plate and when you spend an hour at lunch break, you 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 get so many things knocked out and you come back recharged with a bunch of stuff no longer on your mind as distractions, but you're ready focused, focus and go in. So you're not the issue. Right. But he couldn't do that. And he couldn't do it because he's made this blanket policy. And as a leader, I would just say, why are you doing that policy? If somebody can explain to me, what was your initial response on why the lunch break was an hour to 30 minutes? What did you say? We're going to use our. The resources better with potential clients or something
0: yeah i think it was something about having the desire to reach customers more and the point that i'm trying to make is
1: this the boss doesn't need to be nicer he doesn't need to be friendlier and he doesn't need to not cut lunch breaks he just needs to be able to communicate it not by talking but at first by listening right Because I don't know what the problem with the workforce is going to be on the lunch break. What if the response is going to be, "You can't do that because many of our client interaction doesn't happen till five o'clock or later in the afternoon." So we're going to be here anyway, and that would take us over the number of work hours, right? That Mm -hmm. that's a completely different argument than what the first one was from Bob or Barbara, or it could have been we have all these client luncheons. How are we supposed to? Force our clients into finishing lunch in 30 minutes, right? Like, I don't know what the argument is. But when you make your statement, whatever the response is, that's the direction you go. I made a response. You didn't go that direction. Hmm. You're telling your people, he didn't care. Yeah, He just doesn't care.
0: In that case, what was the distractor of his listening? The agenda of making a blanket
1: policy that you just didn't want to discuss because you don't really want to get into the fact that you think a bunch of people have been taking advantage of the lunch break and you don't want to have this discussion. That's the distraction, right? That priority to get this policy in place, you've you've said, I'm going to put that as a policy, uh, that is a priority to get that policy in place over building relationships with your people. That's it. You made a decision.
0: And so that was an agenda-based distractor. What are some of the other key distractors that that people are most likely to run into as they are talking with people and trying to listen to and understand them better?
1: Most of them come down to agenda-based distractions. Hmm. Most do. The, the next biggest category are biases. Okay. So if, if that same boss hears from, you know, Carl – who he believes, the boss believes Carl's been taking advantage of the lunch breaks. And Carl says, I don't know how we're supposed to have lunch and get back within 30 minutes. The boss isn't really hearing him. Like he's not really listening to him. All he's thinking about is you're the problem, (laughs) right? And, and, And so that is a bias towards Carl. And therefore we're not listening to him. And when the boss doesn't want to have this discussion and says, Carl, I came here just to make sure everyone was clear on the guidance, period. Questions? No? Great. Next topic, right? It's fine. You just made a decision that to get that policy passed immediately without discussion came comes before building relationships, hmm. and it's a hard decision to make because really – as a leader, your job should be building relationships over setting policy, transfer of information, even the gathering of most accurate information to make the best decisions, which is really a key role for a leader, should come second to building relationships with your people.
0: So people have listened to what you shared today about empathy-based listening What are the very basic things people can be doing so that they can be better listeners as they're interacting with people, whether it's whether it's people they're leading or any other number of interactions they're going to have throughout the day and week?
1: The number one thing is this. Number one thing is you you need to reevaluate why you have conversations. The purpose of a conversation should not be to influence through your words, your knowledge, or your persuasion. The purpose of a conversation to be to gain influence via trust through this technique of listening. If trust is the most important thing um, in a relationship, and it is, and if the way you gain that trust is through this form of listening, the whole purpose of most conversations should be employing this technique of listening.
0: Well, Eric, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing about empathy-based listening, and your, your life and experience as an interrogator. Before you go, I have a few final questions that are meant to inspire us toward better leadership. So, you ready for this? Sure. All right. What is some lesson saying or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day?
1: So the best leader that I've ever been around was my Delta Force commander in 2003. His name was Bam Bam. He rarely spoke. I never saw him angry. And he... Inspired some of the most highly trained, qualified special operations soldiers would have done anything for him. And he was able to lead quietly and kindly, yet, no one ever had a doubt who was in charge. And his role model, his unintended mentorship has probably had a greater impact on me than any other book or leadership thought that I've I've learned in my life.
0: Hmm. That's powerful. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is... Empathetic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Innovative. Creative.
0: What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others?
1: So, leaders solve problems, okay? They come up with solutions to problems. Well, we should always ask ourselves, what is the core issue? How did this come about? Yeah. As an interrogator, my problems, I couldn't get prisoners to talk. And the interrogation techniques that I was trained on didn't work. Why? Well, it wasn't because I was a bad interrogator and that people wanted to make bad techniques. The, The reason was, the principles of the wars that we were fighting in the 21st century were different than the principles of the war that you would fight in the early 20th century, mid-20th century, late 20th century. There weren't battlefields. There weren't uniforms. There weren't governments. These were insurgencies of radical Islam. And when, you, when, when that battlefield changes, you have to understand how does it change to understand why certain things no longer work. And I think with every problem we face, when people say, well, this is the way that we used to do it, and this is, but it's changed. But you've got to gotta know why and how it has changed. Really, the core issues is usually where you can find the, the basic solutions
0: to problems. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? My favorite book is
1: How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Which is really funny because it's a really old book, and I was talking about changing times and but it, it, it stands the test
0: of time. So far that's been the most highly recommended book on this podcast, which I guess should not be too surprising.
1: I mean his whole game is empathy, right? Like he has a little bit of sympathy and care, but his if you really look into why he what his message is is a message of empathy and understanding.
0: So if you could get every listener to start doing something this week that would help them be a better leader, what would that thing be?
1: Test this idea of listening with empathy without distractions, and I would love for you to see as a leader the reaction that people have towards you. Mm-hmm. The positive reaction. If you see the positive reaction people have towards you, then you'll you'll want this thing. It'll become addictive.
0: And finally, we have an arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not?
1: I mean, probably, probably why not? I would say 30 years ago, maybe why? Because there were just, it was harder to get information. I think when we say why, we can probably get a decent answer. But the why not probably is is one that needs to be asked more now. But I love them both. So I'm I'm I'm,
0: I'm, I'm <laughs> All righty. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Where can people go to find out more about you, your work and empathy based listening?
1: Check out my website, Eric my podcast, Creating Influence and uh, connect with me on Facebook. Eric B. Maddox Facebook page. I put little videos out there. And if you're ever in a city that I'm giving a presentation, you know, come check it out.
0: All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share some of your own thoughts on what you heard today, or if you want to leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at life And if you think today's interview could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them. Until next time, keep living and leading well.